Yeah, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. As you know, we're going to open up God's Word in just a minute. Um, my name is Guy. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to be with you again to share from the Bible. But before I do that, I want to uh, share with you next week, I will be in Myanmar and uh, back with Pastor Nopum. And so I appreciate your prayers for that. Um, it's always a super exciting thing to be there, and it's very inspirational to, to see the believers there and to be with Nopum, and hopefully to bring something to, to impart to them that will build them up in their faith. And I go as your representative, and it's in a sense we go together. I got an email from Pastor Nopum just a couple of days ago, and he told me about a baptism that he did. We have a, a picture of him with... Um, these students, uh, one, uh, the, the young lady is in the ninth grade and the young man is in the 10th grade. They are a part of the Myongmya boarding school. And um, I'll just read you a little bit of what he says here. He says, as I have informed you, I went to the Delta region last Saturday and we have water baptism service early Sunday morning for those who converted from Buddhism. These are Myongmya students one lady is ninth grade, the other 10th grade. They have firmly believed Jesus as their own savior and firmly decided to follow Jesus, whatever cost is awaiting them. We expect some problem will come to them from their parents and relatives. Our prayer is that they may stand firm in the faith and they have strong commitment too. And so uh, two more slides. Next slide, now you'll see... Um, this slide, um, I sent it to Darren, a uh, fellow pastor who's going to join, he's going to join me over there next week, and he responded and he said, what is in that water? <laughs> okay, so, so that's, that's commitment right there, all right? That's Pastor Nupum baptizing last Sunday, and hey, we had a baptism last Sunday too, didn't we? The water was cold. But I think everyone would rather have been in our water than that water. <laughs> 25 people got baptized, amazing testimonies, and so isn't it great? We always say at River West Church that uh, when someone comes to faith in Christ, that um, every story is unique, and yet every story is the same. Every story is unique because God calls each one by name, loves each one, knows each one, draws each one to their own individual faith in Christ. But every story is the same because Jesus is the hero of the story. And it's the story of that person coming into the story of Jesus Christ. And whether that's here or halfway around the world, it's, it's essentially the same story. That's what makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is a profound truth. So thank you for your faith. Uh, those who are baptized, thank you for your commitment. And we have the same prayer for you. We expect some problems. <laughs> we expect there will be problems because, you know, you're a target now. As you've committed to Christ, you're a target, really, for the enemy. And so uh, may you be strong in the Lord, strong in your faith, strong in your commitment. And so now we turn to Psalm 16. We began our study in Psalm 16 last Sunday, and we made it through two verses, <laughs> and that's all. So now we continue. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Last week, I told you that Psalm 16 is a psalm of refuge, and yet it is a psalm of refuge with a twist, and the twist is that 
This psalm, unlike other psalms of refuge, this psalm gives no specific crisis that sort of generated the psalm. Many of the psalms of refuge, there's a specific problem, crisis, which is mentioned, and then you know why David is seeking refuge. But this one is a little different. It doesn't seem to have a specific crisis that is mentioned, but there is one clue about the trouble that may have led to this psalm. There's one clue, and I think it's really important. That clue is in verse 7. So go to verse 7. We're going to read the whole thing again in a minute. Go to verse 7, and let's pay close attention He says in verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. Now, we have to just linger over this for a minute because I think this is the clue. This tells us what generated this psalm of refuge. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs instructs me. Now that Hebrew word where it says my heart instructs me is actually a word that has kind of ominous overtones. In many cases, it's translated by another word than than instruct. In fact, most often that Hebrew word means something more like correction, chastening, or discipline. In the night... My heart corrects me. In the night, my heart chastens me. It disciplines me. There's another verse in in the prophet Jeremiah where it says, Correct me, Lord, but with justice and not in anger. And it's the same Hebrew word, correct me. It doesn't just say instruct me, it says correct me. Lord, I'm I'm getting off track here. I'm I'm getting on the wrong path. My thinking is messed up. Lord, give me an attitude adjustment here, but do it gently, Lord. (laughs) Okay? Now, that's exactly the word that he uses here. In fact, in in a modern translation, one of the newer translations, the Christian Standard Bible, it puts it like this. I actually put it on a slide because I thought it would be helpful for you guys to see it. I will bless the Lord who counsels me even when my thoughts are troubled. Now, that's the way this, this very recent translation translates this verse. And I think that it's a great translation. I think it gets after the heart of the matter. It seems that David had a troubled mind in the middle of the night. And like so many verses in the Psalms, we're given a window into the heart and mind of the psalmist. We're given a window into the psyche, the heart and the mind, the mental process of the believer. And what we find there is a sort of wrestling match. There is a wrestling match. It's mental, it's emotional, it's spiritual, there's turmoil, and there's many such verses that we can find in the book of Psalms. So let's look at one other Go to Psalm 77, and I'm going to read 2 through 6. And now this is like an expanded version of what 
David says in Psalm 16 when he says, even in the night, my heart instructs me or corrects me or like I'm, I'm in this wrestling match in the night with my thoughts. Check this out, Psalm 77 and verse 2. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Are you getting the vibe? You getting the vibe? You, this is like a window into the mental, emotional thought process of the psalmist. And it happens in the middle of the night. What about you? Have you ever woken in the night with a troubled mind? Isn't that a stupid question? <laughs> Have you ever been awakened in the night with a troubled heart? You know, I was reading this week about what happens when we sleep. I found this article, you know, three amazing things that the brain does while you sleep. Actually, there were more than three, but I, I sort of capitalized on these. Do you know that when you sleep, your brain is at work. And it's, it's really a fascinating process. Your brain is processing stuff, processing the day, processing your worries, your thoughts, your experiences. And this article says there's these th amazing things your brain does while you sleep. Number one, it makes decisions. Did you know that you, that you actually make decisions while you sleep? Isn't that weird? That's why sometimes when you wake up in the morning, you go, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I don't know if you've ever had that. I have. I've, woken, I've actually woken up in the night and went, I, get, I know what I'm supposed to do. You make decisions while you sleep. Weird. Your brain creates and consolidates memories while you sleep. So while you're, That's why you have all those weird dreams. Right? You're thinking, what was that dream about? I wake up and I, I tell my wife, I had the weirdest dream. And I have no idea what it was about. But my brain knows what it was about. It's consolidating memories. It's like, it, it, it's like locking in memories into our psyche. Here's another thing the brain does while you sleep. It makes creative connections. It sort of figures out how to connect the dots between all the things that you know and think and believe and experience. It starts to make connections. And all of that is awesome, but you don't need a PhD to know that sometimes the brain doesn't do all that well. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because sometimes you wake up and you don't, you don't go, I've got it. It's all figured out. I see how everything connects, right? Sometimes you wake up and what you realize is your brain is having a meltdown. <laughs> your brain isn't doing so well. <laughs> your brain hasn't figured it out. You're like, brain, you're supposed to make decisions, but you can't decide. You don't know what to do. Sometimes the brain is locking in a memory into your psyche that is not the memory that you want to live by and planting it deep into your thinking and deep into your heart. And sometimes the brain 
is not able to connect the dots in a way that's actually helpful to you. And so it goes. At 2.30 in the morning, for me it's always 2.30 in the morning. I don't know why. I wake up and I'm troubled and I, and I just know, what time is it? 2.30. <laughs> it's 2.30. So I'm 30 years old and I have three young children, one five, one three, and, and one one-year-old. And I have more bills than I have money in the bank to pay for them. And boom, 2.30 in the morning, I wake up. <laughs> and I have a troubled heart. And my brain isn't doing so well. I'm going, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm 40 years old. I'm struggling to get this new church started. And there's been some relational conflict in the church. And it's really hurtful. And it's 2.30 in the morning. And I wake up. And I go, I don't know what to do. I'm just so troubled. You ever been troubled by relational conflict and you wake up at 2.30 in the morning and you can't shake it? You can't go back to sleep? I'm 55 years old. And I have adult children who have moved out of the house. They're getting married. They're having their own families. And I wake up at 2.30 in the morning and I'm like, how do you be a parent of an adult child? How do you do that? How do you, how do you give them advice about grandchildren when they don't want to hear any advice about grandchildren? <laughs> and it's 2.30 in the morning. And my brain is, is having a meltdown. Like, I, I don't know how to connect the dots on this one. I'm 65 years old. My Medicare card just came in the mail. <laughs> and it's 2.30 in the morning. And I wake up with a troubled mind. And I go, this is so weird. You know, I'm going through this transition at the church and I'm doing new things and I, and I have a Medicare card. And I actually have a picture in my mind of a calendar and years are just flying off the calendar. And I got a buddy that dropped dead yesterday. And I'm actually counting the number of years that are left and thinking, what's going to happen? How much time does God give me left in this world? And it's 2.30 in the morning. And I wake with a troubled mind. Some of you in this room, you know, at all different stages of life, you know exactly what it is to be in that spiritual, emotional, mental wrestling match. What is it for you today? I don't know. But what if this psalm is a window into the heart and mind of David? What was it for David in Psalm 16? We really don't know. But maybe the reason we don't know is because we get to sort of insert our own experience. We get to insert ourselves into the psalm. And really what this is is a window into David's process of taking refuge in the Lord. David says... I bless you, Lord, for your counsel. Well, why would it need counsel? Well, he says, because even the night, I, I have a troubled mind. And I'm trying to sort it out. 
And my thoughts, I think they're getting off track, Lord. And he says, I, I set the Lord always before me. That's what this psalm is about. Always before me. I will not be shaken. What if this psalm gives us a strategy, gives us ways to set the Lord before us in the night? That there's a thought process that corrects us when we start to lose it. <laughs> when we start to, to go down the wrong path and, and we see David being nudged back into this life of faith and trust and refuge. That's what I think that it is. Let's read Psalm 16, and then I'm going to tell you some things that I have found helpful. Psalm 16, verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, here, this is 11 verses, right? It's just 11 verses. I want you to pay attention to the range of themes and ideas in 11 verses. I just want you to think about all the different stuff that it talks about in 11 verses. And kind of where it begins and where it ends. This Lord, he says, protect me, all right? Preserve me, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. In, when my heart is troubled... We've got to add that. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. It's just 11 verses. Wow, how many different kinds of ideas are in 11 verses? This is Hebrew poetry. It's super rich. It's like dense. It's thick. And did you notice something else? If you go from verse 1 to verse 11, I want you to think about kind of where it starts and where it ends. He, he starts just by saying, Lord, preserve me. Right, just protect me. It's a word for safety. Like, keep me safe, Lord. I need refuge. That's where he starts. It's a pretty simple prayer. But where does he end? He ends by saying, You make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He starts with a simple prayer for protection, and he ends up with eternal pleasure and joy in the very presence of God. That's a great journey. <laughs> Isn't that a great journey? You, know, you start with a troubled mind, but where do you end? Every one of us starts with a troubled mind. I mean, you live in the same world that I do, and you have the same kinds of issues that I have in my life. I know 
that all of us, we, we sort of start, the premise is that there's, there's trouble on the horizon. There's a storm that's going to blow in. Okay, that's where we start. But where do we end? What if we could start with a troubled mind and end in a place where we say, you know, there's fullness of joy and pleasure forever in God. And maybe Psalm 16 helps us to get there. So here's what I'm going to do today. I can't tell you how far we're going to get through the psalm. We're going to try. Um, today, I want to give you five things that I tell myself in the night. Five things that I tell myself in the night that help me take refuge in the Lord. You see, you got to have a plan. You got to have somewhere to go. This is what I've learned at 2.30 in the morning. I can wake up at 2.30 in the morning and I can say, you know, there's just no way out. I'm just, I can't connect the dots. My heart is troubled and this is depressing and I'm worried and I don't know what to do. Or I can say, well, that's where I'm going to start, but that's not where I'm going to end. What if I could train myself to think differently? You know, the Psalms, they don't just teach us how to pray, they teach us how to think. You might say, well, that sounds weird, Pastor. Five things you tell yourself in the night. That doesn't sound like praying. I mean, this is, I thought the Psalms were teaching us how to pray. And you're saying, five things you tell yourself in the night. Yeah, but wait a minute. I'm telling myself this stuff, but I'm not stopping there. I'm also talking to God about these things. I'm praying these things. This is the way that it is in life. It's like we, we think, we pray, we believe, we do. It's all, it's all connected. A lot of things in this psalm, they don't exactly sound much like a prayer. They sound more like statements of fact or statements of faith. And, and that's exactly what they are. Five things I tell myself in the night to help me take refuge in the Lord. I'm going to put these up later on a slide, but right now, let's just think it through. The first one is this. I tell myself the truth about the God that I love and serve. Tell myself the truth about the God that I love and serve and trust. That's from Psalm 16, verses 1 and 2. That was the sermon from last week, by the way. Go back and listen if you didn't hear it. Psalm 16, verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The sermon last week was all about the first thing that I tell myself. And, and what I said last week is, this is the essence of refuge. It begins with the rich view of who God actually is. And just as a bit of review, last Sunday we talked about how David enters into this psalm with this rich view of God. He uses three different terms for God. He calls them Elohim, Yahweh, and Adonai in verses 1 and 2. And there's a story that goes with every one of those names or words or titles for God, and it's the story that gives the meaning and tells us the truth about who God is. 
You go back and listen to it. Meditate on it. And then at the end of the sermon last week, we said, you know, this is actually, this psalm is about Jesus. It's about more than, than just what meets the eye. Because in the New Testament, this psalm is quoted about the resurrection of Jesus, that his body did not decay in the grave. And in the New Testament, the book of Acts, they preached Jesus and they quoted Psalm 16 and they said, he did not decay. He was raised up from the dead. This psalm is actually about Jesus. In the night, I've learned to tell myself the truth about the God that I love and serve. And it's rich. It's rich. It brought me to tears. I was in the back during worship and it just brought me to tears. Just singing the truth about our God. So amazing. The God that I love and serve is the God of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the God of the gospel. So everything I said last week about Elohim, he's the creator God. Yahweh is the redeeming God who comes to redeem his people. Adonai, who means, that means Lord or master. All of that is true. And now I add into the mix the truth of Jesus Christ who has come to reveal the reality of God. And I say, there's such a rich palette for me you know, I'm thinking about finances. I'm thinking about other people. I'm thinking about relational conflict. I'm thinking about aging. I'm thinking about, you know, I'm thinking about all this stuff. Okay, all that is real. Yeah, but, but what about the reality of God? What do you tell yourself in the night? It's okay to think about those troubles, but don't, you can start there, but don't stop there. Don't stop there. How well do you know the gospel? You taken the gospel class at our church? The gospel class, so powerful. Hundreds of people have taken it. The gospel class tells you not just about how we get saved. It tells you about who God is, the truth about God. And it's powerful. I have to remind myself in the night. I tell myself the truth about the God that I love and serve. Here's the second thing I tell myself in the night. I tell myself that I am not alone. <laughs> I am not alone. Take a look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. You might be reading Psalm 16 and say, where did that come from? This is a psalm of refuge. This is about David and the Lord and this amazing God. And then all of a sudden it's like, is this a parenthesis? Like, what is this? How did that get in there? As for the saints in the land, they are the excellence ones in whom is all my delight. In times of mental turmoil, we almost always feel alone. We feel isolated. We feel like we're the only person that has ever gone through anything like this. We feel like the hurdles in front of us are unique to us. We feel like there's no one walking by our side. There's no one who understands. There's no one who's walked our path before. And in the night at 2.30 in the morning, you can especially feel that way. Isn't it amazing, David? First, he talks to God about who God is. But the very next thing he does is he says, you know what? There's people all around me, these saints, these believers who really are living out the faith. And he says, those guys, they're, they're excellent. So I delight in those guys. You need to know that taking refuge in the Lord is not something that you do solo. 
you do it as a part of a larger community of faith. It's very, very important to remember that. The enemy would isolate you. You and your turmoil and your worries and your problems isolate you. And David says, no. There are some people around here who are amazing examples of trust and faith, and he brings them to mind. You know, as I thought about this this week, my mind went to uh, a, a great story, a woman named Corey Tenboom. Many of you know her story uh, called The Hiding Place. It was made into a movie. Her family sheltered Jews um, in Holland during World War II, and um, they were all taken to prison because of it, and most of them died. But she actually lived, and she lived to be 91 years old. Corey Tenboon, amazing woman of faith. I was able to hear her speak just about a year before she died. She was in Southern California. I went to a church service. She was there. She spoke, and I so much wanted to hear this woman of faith speak. We have a couple slides. Let me just show you. This is a picture of her um, when she was younger. That's the entrance to the prison camp where she was held captive. The next slide shows what the conditions were like inside the prison. Um, it's stark. Her sister died there. And uh, the next slide uh, has one of her great quotes. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Isn't that a great quote? Like I have this list of quotes from Corey Timboom. And um, I'll just give you a couple of them. You know, the most famous of all is she said, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Actually, her sister was the one who, who originally said that right before she died in that prison. And I went to that meeting hoping that she'd say it, and she did. She said, there is no pit so deep that his love is not deeper still. Thank you, Lord. These are the saints. This is the excellent one. Here's a great one. You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Wow. <laughs> How great is that? Corey Tembum. There's many excellent ones. You don't have to go into history. You don't have to go far into another country to find them. I think of you. I think of the stories that I've heard from people in this congregation who've wrestled with all kinds of things and who have stood in faith and become examples to me. And in the night, I think of these stories. I think of others who have struggled with the same struggles and yet held on to their faith. And you know what? I don't just think about them. I thank God for them and I pray for them. Something amazing happens when, you know, you actually start thinking about other people and then praying for them in the night. You're all worried about your problems, and you're like, yeah, it's true, but, you know, gosh, there's this beautiful Christian brother or sister over here, and I know they're really struggling, and they're hanging on to their faith. I'm going to pray for them. Something happens. So we take refuge together in community. Here's the third thing that I tell myself I tell myself that I will never give up my faith commitment to Christ. I'll never give it up. It's a decision. I'm hanging on to my faith. That's what David says. He says it a little differently in verse 4. 
The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. That sounds kind of intense, doesn't it? It's the language of poetry. It's the the language of the Psalms. The Psalms often paint things in stark terms. You know, there's the good and there's the evil. There's the path that leads to life and the path that leads to death. You have to choose. And this is the language of the Psalms. And David is saying what he says. It sounds sort of negative towards other people. Those who, the sorrows who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. But what is David really doing in the middle of the night? What David is doing is he is reaffirming his own faith commitment. David knows that he has many options. He can abandon his faith in the God of Israel. Many had. He can compromise his faith. He can say, well, I'm going to sort of trust in the God of Israel, but I'm sort of going to trust also in the God of the Philistines because right now, stocks are up for him. You know, right now, I don't know, I know some other people that that have sort of worshipped both, and they're doing pretty good right now. So this is the way it's always been. People hedge their bets. People say, why do I have to have an exclusive faith in Jesus Christ? Why can't I believe in Jesus and go to the astrologer? Why can't I believe in Jesus and go to the palm reader and the psychic? Why can't I believe in Jesus and also sort of be a Buddhist and get all zen out? Why can't I do that? Because I think things might go better if I do. And I have a buddy who, who went all zen. And so, I mean, aren't we really all saying the same thing? I just read an interesting book by Stephen Prothero, who is professor of religion at Boston University, not a Christian, but he wrote a book called God is Not One. It's an okay book. Don't rush out and buy it. But I'm just saying, um, his premise in this book is that everybody's drinking the Kool-Aid saying that all religions and all faiths are essentially the same, just different expressions of the same thing, all believing in the same God and just by different names and different, you know, labels. And he says that is total bunk. That's the story that people want to believe, but it's not true. Now, this is not a Christian saying this. This is just a guy who's a professor of religion. He says, guys, take a look. These are different religions. They're different views. They worship different gods, and they have different solutions to the problems of humanity. And he says it's not that that we should be intolerant of any of them, but we got to at least know what we're actually dealing with. One of the things that for me as a Christian, I have to say, you know what? I believe the gospel. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in this unique claim that God came into the world to save sinners. He died on the cross and he rose again. That's unique. I believe that. I'm committed to that. Somebody might have been offended in this room to say, well, what do you mean these, con- these guys converted from Buddhism? Well, what does that mean? Why do they have to convert from anything? Well, in order to be a follower of Christ, you have to adopt the truth of the gospel and live in it. And when times get hard, sometimes we go, well, I don't know, it's not working out that well for me. And David says, no way, I will never give up my faith. I will never give up my commitment. 
And in the night sometimes when I think about my life, you know, you can do a little evaluation, you know, all the stuff, you know, in your life, and you're like trying to connect the dots. And every time I go, you know what? I'm so glad I made the choice to commit my life to Christ, and I'm never going back. I will not go back on that commitment. That's what David says in the night. It's a great thing to say. Here's the fourth thing that I tell myself. I tell myself that God will never give up on his commitment to me or his good plan for me. God will never give up his commitment, his good plan for me. Take a look at Psalm 16, verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, what's all this about? Now he's talking about chosen portion, my cup, my lot, lines, and inheritance. And all of those are ways of saying the same thing. Exactly the same thing. In ancient Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they went into the promised land. How did God divide up the promised land for his people? By the casting of lots, the lines and the lots. And as they cast the lots, a tribe would get their inheritance and they'd go, okay, this, the lot fell here. That's going to be your place. That's going to be your place. David takes the language of the Old Testament and applies it to his life and says, you know what? God has chosen a good thing for me. I have a good inheritance. I'm going to trust him. He has a good purpose for me and for my life. And God is not going to abandon me. He's got a good plan. Essentially, that's what these verses are saying. God has a good plan for my life. And he is my portion. You know, God's plan for you is not just for you to get stuff. Do you know that? <laughs> it's not just for everything to go smooth. Sometimes I ask people, what do you think God's job description is? Because it sounds like what you think God's job description is, is to give you stuff and make sure everything goes smoothly in your life. But I don't think that's his job description. What is his job description? <laughs> you know, think about that one. That's another sermon. Okay. God wants you to know him. He wants you to be connected to him. He wants that in your life you go, you know what? I have, enough. I have a relationship with the living God, an eternal relationship, and that's enough. That is my inheritance. In Christ, I have this amazing inheritance. In fact, I think I have time. I'm going to read it. It's in Ephesians and in chapter 1. Um, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Do you know the inheritance that is yours in Christ? Do you know the riches that God has given you in Christ? Ask the Holy Spirit in, in the night. Ask God to show you. Lord, show me my inheritance. Show me what you've given me. Show me what you've promised me. Let me see it more clearly, Lord. Let me value it more than the stuff of this life, Lord. And tell yourself, God will never give up on his commitment to me and his good promise to me. 
The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. My inheritance in Christ, it's great. It's awesome. Tell yourself that in the night. Talk to God about it. Here's the final thing. We're kind of rushing through these. I tell myself that Jesus Christ is my risen Lord and Savior and that my life is in Christ. It's in Christ. Now, remember I told you that in Psalm 16, the way it ends is by talking about Christ. In verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, my being rejoices, my flesh dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or, which means the grave or death, basically. Or let your Holy One see corruption. And all that's about Jesus. It's about the resurrection of Christ. It goes beyond David, and now it's talking about something else. It's talking about the gospel of Jesus, the miracle of his resurrection. And then he says in verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand pleasures forevermore. You know, it's amazing. Maybe the other part of his turmoil was just the fear of death. Could have been just the fear of death. I mean, most people struggle with the fear of death. But he gets to the end of this and he says, man, I don't even need to fear that. We find out in the New Testament, that's because of Jesus. Lord, you will show me the path of life. And what we find as Christians is that the path isn't just a path, it's a person. It's a person. I am the way, the truth, and the life, said Jesus. I am the path. It's not an eightfold path broken down into 14 more principles and 32 after that. It's a person. The path of life is Jesus. And if your life is hidden in Jesus, then his victory is yours. His victory is yours. My pastor, when I was a young Christian, used to take a bookmark and he'd put it in his Bible. And he'd say, this is me. This is me right now. I'm just sort of exposed to the world and everything. And he'd put it in his Bible and he'd close the Bible. And he'd go, but now it's in the Bible. And in order, anything to get to the bookmark has got to go through the Bible. He says, my life is hidden in Jesus. It's like the bookmark in the Bible. Anything to get to me has got to go through Jesus. Anywhere this Bible goes, the bookmark is going to go. Anywhere Christ goes, you're going to go. Christ goes to heaven, you go to heaven. Christ is perfect before the Father, you're perfect before the Father. Christ is victorious over demonic power, you're victorious over demonic power. How did you get there? My life is just hidden in Christ. Now, that's a lot. That's a lot of stuff we just went over, right? So in the night, are you going to be able to remember all that? Sure you are, because you're just going to open to Psalm 16. (laughs) See, that's what we have, these psalms. Plus, I have a slide. So let's go to the slide with the five points. (laughs) And you can't read them. (laughs) But I don't know, if you want to take a picture of that, you can. Um, and uh, it's probably too small to, to even read, but um, you just go, you read the psalm. You pray the psalms. We're learning to do this, reprogramming our thinking around the gospel, and that's what it is to take refuge in the Lord. Let's have the worship team come back, and I'm going to say a prayer, and we're going to receive communion together. Father in heaven, I thank you for the riches of your word. I thank you, Lord, for the wisdom 
that you give us. And Lord, you give us not just principles, but a picture. A picture from David's life of his own struggle, of his thought process, of the wrestling match where it begins and how it ends, the steps in between. And Lord, it's, it's so beautiful for us. And I pray that we might be shaped as men and women of trust and faith as we listen and attend to these things. Help us, Lord, to speak the truth of who you are in our hearts and minds. Help us, Lord, to see the faith of those around us and to take note of it and be encouraged by it. Help us, Lord, to avoid the temptation to give up our faith or to compromise our faith. Help us, Lord, I pray, to see the amazing inheritance that is ours in Christ. And Lord, to be hidden in you. So bless, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.